models, teaches, encourages, and challenges another Christian to obey Christ's teachings and the Word of God. So uh, that's the definition. If you like definitions, that's the one we're going to roll with this afternoon. So let's talk about the biblical imperatives for evangelism and discipleship. We've kind of loosely defined it. We have a working definition, but why should we do it? What does Scripture have to say about uh, us, the church, and evangelism and discipleship. And few of you probably need to be instructed on these, the, the biblical imperatives for evangelism and discipleship. Many of us can quote Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, we know that we should share our faith and make disciples, so I don't want to belabor this section too much, but I do want you to see that Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is not the only great commission commandment that we have from the mouth of Christ. We actually have five key great commissioning statements that Jesus gives his disciples. We find one in each of the four Gospels and the fifth one in Acts. So I mentioned Matthew 28, 18 through 20 already. Here it is. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's Jesus' commissioning statement in the Gospel of Matthew. Here it is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke 24, 45 through 47. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Great commissioning statement in John. John 20, 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then lastly, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus speaking to the Disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So these are the clear imperatives that Jesus gives the apostles regarding evangelism and discipleship. And if you read through the book of Acts, you find that the apostles clearly embraced this commission. And as a result, the gospel spread quickly throughout Jerusalem and then into the surrounding region. The, the refrain that you see as you read through the book of Acts is, and the word of God increased. And the word of God multiplied. And the word of God spread throughout the region as people went and shared. But the other thing that we see, to see as we read through the book of Acts is that this wasn't a commission that was given strictly to the apostles. It was to be embraced by the church at large. So later on, Peter, when he's writing his letter to the church, says to them, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So the church takes on this function of proclamation that's central to evangelism and also to discipleship. So we've defined evangelism and discipleship. We've given the biblical imperative. We find it in these five great commissioning statements. We see, see it playing out in the book of Acts as we read along. I want to take some time now to talk about a, a philosophy of evangelism and discipleship. So we're going to get to tactics, methods, how do we really get out there where the rubber meets the road and do this stuff. But before we do, I'm going to talk about a philosophy of evangelism and discipleship. And these are big picture principles for thinking about 
the manner in which we should practice evangelism and discipleship. And we want to build our philosophy around the philosophy that Jesus seemed to have as he went about his ministry on earth. So I'm going to give you three principles this afternoon for building a philosophy of evangelism and discipleship. And I will say if you're here back in December when I preached through John 20, this is going to sound familiar to you, but repetition is always good. We need repetition. We need to hear things over and over. So the three principles that I want us to see this morning, uh, this afternoon, or to develop as we think about a philosophy of evangelism and discipleship is that evangelism and discipleship should be done physically, purposefully, powerfully. Those are the big paradigms in which evangelism and discipleship should find its being. So let's start by talking about engaging with evangelism and discipleship physically. Possibly the greatest and most profound mystery of Christianity is that the all-knowing, all-powerful, immortal creator of the universe came to dwell physically among us on earth. So of all the different philosophies for, for evangelism, philosophies for discipleship that God could have chosen, the culmination of his redemptive plan to save humanity involved his taking on a physical nature. So in his mission to save us from sin and death, in his mission to restore us to fellowship with himself, God didn't just call down from heaven, he showed up on earth. His method for mission was not simply mouth to ear, but shoulder to shoulder and hand to hand. So he left his heavenly home and he entered into our world with all its mess all its evil, its pain, its dysfunction, its sorrow. And then Jesus says, as the Father sent me physically, so I'm sending you physically. So big picture philosophy. What that means is evangelism is not primarily, hey, y'all should come to church with me, right? Invite your friends to church. But that's not what God said. God came to us. God, God went out into the mess physically where we were. He came to us, and then he sent us out. He sends us out physically into the mess to do evangelism out there. So we go physically just as God went physically. And we talked about back in December the importance of maintaining that principle in your philosophy of evangelism and discipleship as technology continues to change there's more and more opportunities to do this through a screen I don't think that's a good philosophy for evangelism and discipleship it needs to be face-to-face person-to-person physical with your neighbor neighborly love involved I think that's crucial for a philosophy of evangelism and discipleship so we have an equation we often use here at River when we talk about evangelism we talk about developing trust relationships, and then having gospel conversations. And I don't know many people who have trust relationships with other people they never met, other people they don't spend time with. So if you really want to develop trust relationships with people, it's going to take time, it's going to take effort, it's going to take you going physically, being with people, living life with them uh, face-to-face. So that's your first kind of overarching principle as we think about how do we do evangelism and discipleship. It needs to be done physically. Second thing, it should be done purposefully. That's to say we must view it as a spiritual discipline, something that we discipline ourselves to do, something that we choose to do. Well, God chose to come to earth, he chose, and when he came, he had a clear purpose already in mind. Okay, Jesus didn't show up and just kind of make it up as he went. He wasn't hoping that the right opportunity presented itself at just the right time. From day one, he was intentionally moving toward his purpose. And his purpose was not to be 
a wise teacher or a social revolutionary, he came so that all who would humble themselves, turn from sin and trust in him, could be made righteous before God, to be born again as his children into his everlasting kingdom. And so, as we think about how Jesus did that, we would, be, would do well, I think, to model the way that Jesus was purposeful in our own evangelism and discipleship, to be purposeful in how we think of doing it. So our purpose, as it's been given to us through the commission of Christ, is to go and make disciples of all people groups, baptize them, teach them everything Jesus commanded. And now we have to move intentionally toward that purpose that he's given us. And if we're going to live purposefully in the the whirlwind of life, we're going to have to discipline ourselves to do this. Whitney says, we must discipline ourselves to get into situations where evangelism can occur. That is, we must not just wait for witnessing opportunities to happen. Apart from making evangelism a spiritual discipline, most Christians will seldom share the gospel. I can say that's true for, uh, for my own life. If I don't make it an intention to share my faith, if I don't make an intention to make disciples the busyness of life just kind of swallows that up. And all of a sudden I look, look up a couple months later and I go, wow, when was the last time I talked to somebody about Jesus? When was the last time I, I made an intentional effort? So I talked about the river equ- equation. We have trust relationships <clears throat> and gospel conversations. And all I'll say is, if all we do is develop trust relationships but we never discipline ourselves to have the gospel conversations, we're not doing evangelism. Right? We're not doing it. We're not making disciples. Now, obviously, we need to use discernment about how and when and to share, but from my experience personally and in talking to other people, most people tend to wait far longer than they need to to have those conversations for whatever reason. So, we're thinking about evangelism and discipleship purposefully. We're not sitting back, passively waiting, hoping something happens. We're taking action to pray for the lost to build trust relationships with non-believers in our spheres of influence to share the gospel, send out missionaries from our churches to support other evangelistic ministries in our community. Purposely. It's one of the big paradigms for our philosophy of evangelism and discipleship. Third one, powerfully. <clears throat> in Acts 1, right before Jesus gives the apostles his commissioning statement in verse 8, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, Luke records in verses 4 and 5 that Jesus says this, He ordered them, his apostles, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus says in in Acts 1.8, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, but don't get started yet. That's what he says in verses 4 and 5. You need to wait. You need to just sit tight in Jerusalem until you receive the promised Holy Spirit because you're not going to be very useful if you're not doing evangelism and discipleship powerfully through the power of the Spirit that the Father is going to send to you. So they wait, Jesus said, Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit falls on the disciples at Pentecost and things immediately start happening. Peter, who just a few chapters before in the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> had denied Christ three times because he was afraid of, of man, afraid of their ability to harm him. Now we see him out publicly preaching to the masses. 
Thousands are being saved. It's the power of the Spirit that compels and empowers the church to be the agent of God's mission in the world. So when I say evangelism and discipleship should be done powerfully, I'm not talking about human power. I'm not talking about big muscles, booming voice, authoritarian command. We're talking about spiritual power. Power that's not harnessed by bowing up, it's harnessed by bowing down. And abiding in the Spirit is fundamentally assuming a posture of surrender in our hearts. It's about being emptied of the idea that we can somehow affect change through our evangelism and discipleship and submitting to the reality that God, through His exclusive power, has the ability to do those things. So we have to acknowledge we have treasure. here's, Here's evangelism. We have treasure in a jar of clay. That's where the power is. We have treasure in a jar of clay. And many of us are going to have to reframe our thinking about that because we've been wired to run away. Physically, mentally, emotionally, we run away when we get scared. We want to avoid situations where we feel weak or out of control, and that's normal. But over and over again in the Scripture, the consistent idea we see is that God's power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is not made perfect in our strength. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So if we want to engage in the mission of God powerfully, we're going to have to learn to override that desire to run away. Run away from fear. Run away from discomfort. Run away from sharing our faith. Because we're afraid what the other person is going to say or think. We're going to have to learn in those situations to love weakness and the faith that must be exercised in the face of fear. So... If I was going to give you two verses, if you're a person who struggles with fear when it comes to sharing your faith, fear when it comes to making disciples, I'll give you two verses that have been helpful for me. First is Galatians 1.10. Paul says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Or if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Who are you living to please? Are you living to please man? Are you living to please Christ? Second verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I think often the power of the Spirit that we want, that we need, is just on the other side of this cloud of fear that we face. And the only way that we get to the power is going through the fear by faith. But often we we stop when we get to the cloud, so we never experience the power of the Spirit in our lives, the power of the Spirit in evangelism and discipleship, because we let fear dictate what we're going to do. So these are two verses. This is your sword to slay fear when it comes to evangelism and discipleship. These two verses, you hide them in your heart and in your mind, and you take them with you, and you allow them to push you through the cloud of fear into the power of the Spirit as you live in obedience to Christ. So those are three principles as we think big picture. What's the philosophy of evangelism and discipleship? We do it physically, purposefully, powerfully. So now let's get to some of the more practical aspects of evangelism and discipleship. We've talked about the, the what and the why. Now let's talk about the how. So what I want to do is give you four steps to pre-evangelism. That is four things to do before you even get to the point of sharing your faith. Then talk about three methods for evangelism. 
And then we're going to finish by, uh, I'll give you four tools for discipleship. So let's start by talking about four steps to pre-evangelism. The first one is to identify. I would say identify the non-believers that God has put in your life. <clears throat> I, I've talked to, to um, young men before who try to convince me that they just, there aren't any non-believers around them. That's quite the excuse. Okay? There are non-believers all around you all the time. The problem is not that they're not around you. The problem is often that we don't pay attention to them. Right? So think about your neighborhoods. Think about your neighbors. Think about your coworkers. Think about the, if you go to the gym regularly at the same time, you probably see the same people there most days. They also go there at the same time. There are people all around you, and they're non-believers. Maybe you know they're non-believers. Maybe you don't know. The, the step one is to identify who are the people that God has put around me and to believe that God has put those people around you on purpose so that you might be salt and light. So think about, pray through, who are the people that God has put around me and my, my challenge to you is to identify two, specifically, that you want to discipline yourself to share with. And I would write their names down, and then with step two, I would say start praying for them. So second step to pre-evangelism is to pray. You've identified the people God's put around you. Hopefully you can specifically identify a couple, and you can start praying for them. Prayer is so important because we can't, ex we can't forget the magnitude of what happens when we share the gospel. What, the feat that God is accomplishing through gospel proclamation. Right? That spiritually dead people have to be made spiritually alive people. That's what has to happen. We don't have the ability to do that. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul writes, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They're blind. I can't make a blind person see. You can't make a blind person see. God, by the Holy Spirit, is the only one who can do that. That's why the second step to pre-evangelism is to pray. <clears throat> so a prayer that you can pray uh, is a Bob prayer. So the acronym for Bob is first for um, brokenness. Pray that God would break your heart for the lost. Pray that God would break your heart for those two people that you've identified in your life to share with. The O is to pray for opportunities. Pray that God would open the door for you to be able to share with them, to be able to build relationship with them. Brokenness, opportunity, the last B there is boldness. That God would give you boldness to share when he does provide the opportunity. So I would encourage you just to make that a consistent daily prayer. <clears throat> I would pray it specifically for those two people that you've identified and to pray it generally. Because it may be that God wants you to share with somebody who's not on your list, somebody who you haven't identified, kind of these divine appointments that just happen in the course of everyday life. And we would be ready for that. I think Bob prayers is one of the ways to be ready for those opportunities that God might give you. So identify, pray. Third is decide. 
So here's what I've observed in my own life. It's what Whitney talked about. But if I go into a conversation thinking, I'll just see if God opens a door, then it's easy for me to doubt or to second guess all the way through that conversation. Right? Well, is that, is that my open door? Ooh, not sure if it's open. Is it open? Is it open enough? And I'm, le- I'm still deciding, right? I'm still deciding. Oh, am I going to share? Am I going to share? And often what happens is, unless God just comes in and completely kicks the door down and blows it off the hinges, I'm going, yeah, I think I'll wait. But the difference is, if you decide beforehand you're going to share, then all you need is the slightest opening, and you know this is, my op- this is it. This is my opportunity. I decided, I prayed, a crack is all I need. And I'm going to share. I'm a peace country person, which means I like to keep the peace. I don't like to talk about controversial stuff. So if it was up to my human nature, I'd be very slow to share. I want the ideal situation. And so deciding beforehand has, has really helped me. I've had so many more gospel conversations because I've decided I'm going to share when the opportunity presents itself. And it's actually been fruitful. It hasn't been forced. It's just been something I've had to discipline myself to do. Right? This is a spiritual discipline, just like reading the scripture, praying. Say, some days I don't wake up and want to read my Bible, but I do it. Some days I don't wake up wanting to go talk to people about Jesus, but I do it. I discipline myself. One of the things to remember is that God wants to be glorified. He wants to be glorified in the world. He wants to be glorified in your life. He wants to be glorified among creation. He wants to be glorified in the lives of all the people that he's put around you. So if God wants to be glorified, why is he going to put obstacles in your path to keep that from happening? I think we just need to assume God wants to be glorified. He wants to be glorified in my life. He wants to be glorified in this person's life. So I'm just assuming that he's going to create opportunities for that to happen. So identify, pray, decide. Fourth thing is bridge. And I find that some people, this comes pretty naturally for this fourth step. Some people, it doesn't. And you have, again, have to kind of learn this and discipline yourself to do it. But the idea is, as you go into the conversation, you have a question in mind, or maybe two questions that you're going to use to build a spiritual bridge. You're going to use to bridge conversation to spiritual things. Sometimes you're going to need to listen. You're going to need to be sensitive to the Spirit and where He's leading, the opportunities that He presents to you. But other times I think it's helpful just to have a question ready, ready to ask at some point. A question like, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Have you ever been to church? Have you ever read the Bible? Those are very simple questions, plain questions that you can ask to try to bridge to spiritual things. And I think if you have decided when you go into these conversations that you'll start to find the opportunities to bridge are pretty clear. They'll start to become more clear to you. So one of the things is you might go to work tomorrow and a coworker might say, what did you do this weekend? Now, there's a way to answer that question, kind of sanitize the, the Jesus stuff off of it, right? Well, I went to my son's basketball game on Saturday and then we watched the Chiefs Sunday afternoon. Well, that might be true. But what if you say, I went to my son's basketball game Friday, then I went to church Sunday morning, then I watched the Chiefs Sunday afternoon. 
Do you go to church anywhere? Boom, you're there, right? But if you're not praying about that, you're not deciding, you're not thinking about how do I bridge this conversation to spiritual things, you might just miss those opportunities. So those are some steps to pre-evangelism. Identify, pray, decide, bridge. So now you've bridged into a spiritual conversation and you have an opportunity to share the gospel. I want to talk about three methods for sharing the gospel. The first is a gospel presentation. Um, I handed out these. Many of you had them already. Two ways to live. This, you know, this is something that I talk about a lot. We've started talking about more at River. And I just want to reiterate that there's nothing special about this booklet. There's nothing special about two ways to live. It is not some God-ordained thing that's better than all the other ones. But it's a tool that I think if you became fluent in, could be really helpful for you. And that's the goal, is to become gospel fluent. That's my challenge to you, is to be familiar in the the language of the gospel and know what's crucial and know what's essential to communicate to someone when you're going to share the gospel. And I think one way to do that is to to memorize this or to go through and study it, maybe not memorize it, but, but just to know the key parts so I mentioned we throw the word gospel around a lot in the Christian world, but I've come across many Christians who I would ask, what's the gospel? And they would struggle to explain it. So it's this thing we talk about a lot, but some people aren't even sure what it is. How are we going to teach the gospel if we don't know what it is? We need to know what the gospel is. So the question I ask people is, if you had five minutes or less to tell someone who had never heard anything about Christianity... What Christianity was all about, what would you say to him? We ought to all hopefully be able to answer that question. And if we can't right now, our hope is that we can get there, that we could do that. So the goal is gospel fluency. I just want to walk through this with you and tell you how I would explain it. So if you've not looked at two ways to live before, it takes the the core kind of theological beliefs of the gospel and, and breaks them into these six images that are represented up on the screen. Each one of those images communicates a theological truth and is attached to a a verse of Scripture. And so uh, I'll just walk through it with you, and I think we have slides up there. So the first first truth is that God is the good ruler and creator. So the idea here is that God created everything in the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, the birds of the air, fish of the sea, animals that creep along the ground, But the crown of his creation, the prize jewel, was mankind. If you read through Genesis 1, the only thing that God made in his image and likeness was mankind. Mankind was special. Mankind was unique. And he gave mankind a job, a special job. And the job was to rule over the world that he had made, but to do it in submission to him. Rule over the world that he made in submission to him. That was mankind's job. That's represented by the image up there. The crown represents God. You have the world. You have man. There's an order there. God, man, creation. Genesis 1.31 says God looked at everything he saw, he had made, and it was good. So, what you and I know is that we look around the world today and everything is not good. Scripture tells us why that is. Here's the second theological truth. It's about sin. So the way that I like to describe this is that 
in the garden, Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, and when they were tempted, they chose to rebel against God. God had said, this is the order, you are to rule over the world that you made in submission to me, but they stepped out of that order, and what actually happened in the garden is they listened to the serpent and tried to overrule God. You see how that got flipped on its head? All of a sudden, it's a created thing that the humans are submitting to as they try to stand over God. So the order gets flipped on its head. There's a rebellion that happens there. That rebellion is sin. And that, re- that rebellion spread to all of mankind after Adam and Eve. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we have creation. We have sin, which is this rebellion, this disorder that happens in God's cosmos. And then third, the consequences of that sin. You find them in Genesis 3 as you keep reading. Physical death, we're going to summarize them. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So now we've laid out the bad news. Thankfully, that's not where Christianity ends, right? We have good news. Here's the good news. The good news is that God sent his son to live the life that we were supposed to live, but didn't, and then to die the death that we deserved. So Jesus came, he submitted to the will and ways of God perfectly, he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin, he had a perfect righteousness before God, and then instead of dangling it over us, he offered it to us, and he did that through his death on the cross and his resurrection, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that's that's the great exchange there. Jesus' righteousness for our sin. So I mentioned Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. By the way, if uh, I talk to students when they go through the leadership uh, process for challenge, and I ask them, tell me the gospel, one of the two things that they most often forget is the resurrection. Left Jesus in the grave. That's a problem. Jesus didn't stay dead. Okay, next slide. Jesus came back to life. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. The Father's made him now the ruler of the universe. He's the rightful ruler. And 2 Timothy 4.1 tells us that Christ, at the end of this age, will judge the living and the dead. So he's now the rightful ruler of the universe and the judge. Okay, next slide. So that means that for you and I, there are just two ways to live. Right, there's one way, which is the way of Adam and Eve, is to continue to live in rebellion against God with the crown on our own head, thinking that we know best how to rule the world. The other way is to take the crown off our head and put it on Jesus' head. Say, Jesus is the Lord. I'm going to live to follow him and to serve him. John 3:36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not believe in Son, the wrath of God remains on him. So those are the two ways to live. To live as your own ruler and face the wrath of God. To submit to Jesus and his will and his ways by faith, trust in him, and have eternal life. And so one of the things that I like about this is that it really draws it to a close at the end. And it, it leaves you with an easy question to ask. And the question is, which way would you say you're living? And then you just wait, and you give them a chance to respond.
So that's two ways to live. Again, if you just became fluent in that language, that theology, I told you the resurrection is one of the key things that I hear students miss the most. The other thing is they don't talk about creation. They start with sin. We sinned. What does that mean? Especially to someone who's never read the Bible. We sinned. What does that mean? Why does God have any right to say what I do or, or don't do? Well, that's established in creation, right? So creation, resurrection, those are two ones that get missed. So that's one way that you can share the gospel. I like it because it's simple and clear but not simplistic. It connects to God's ordered creation. It emphasizes lordship. I really like that it emphasizes lordship, this idea of a crown. It's not a prayer. You pray at church camp and then you go home and you live your life the same way you were before. There's a, there's a change in authority and rulership and lordship. It's presented in two ways to live. So, that's a tool you can take. Uh, at the very least, you could just walk through the track with somebody. I will say they have a good website. It's twowaystolive.org.com. You can find it. It's a, it's, it. But they also have Spanish and French on the website. So if you come across a Spanish-speaking person, you could pull up the website and go through it with them in Spanish. My favorite way to do this is I just have this memorized, and I will. Uh, I like to draw napkins. So I did this on Friday, met with a guy, grabbed a napkin, pulled out my pen, I drew this out as I explained it to him. I wrote the scripture on there. And the reason I like to do a napkin is because then when we get ready to leave, I, I give him the napkin. I say, take this home with you. Read these scriptures for yourself. Open the Bible and do it. So he can take the gospel with him. Then, and he can continue thinking about it. So that's one way, two ways to live. Second way that you can share the gospel is with a personal testimony. So Steve Shadrach says, two of the most powerful weapons God gave us are the gospel and our own testimony. Being able to specifically explain to someone how the gospel has personally affected your life is the most practical tool we have in our evangelism tool belt. Friends can question and oppose the various points or verses we may share with them, but they can't refute the fact that our lives have been changed by Jesus Christ. So the power of a personal testimony. Next slide, Aaron. So this is a, a personal story about how Jesus has transformed your life. So I think many of you, if you were given time, you could articulate that. Hopefully you could. The problem is that if you haven't thought through it real well, it may take you 10 to 15 minutes. You may put a bunch of details in there that aren't super important. And so I think the biggest thing with the personal testimony is being able to to process through it beforehand and hone it down to what are the key things that I would communicate to someone about how Jesus has changed my life. I would say if you could get that down to two to three minutes, that's about where people's attention spans are most of the time. If you go on beyond three minutes, you're probably going to lose people. So thinking it through, honing it down, making it relevant to the listener's life situation. So this could be, when I say a personal testimony, it could be a personal testimony about how you came to faith a testimony of your salvation. It could also be a, a testimony of how God delivered you through a certain situation when you were following him. Uh, it could be, you know, like uh, you're meeting, you meet this um, young girl and she just is hopelessly single and she just is, you know, can't be content and you can share a story about how God maybe met you in a situation like that to show the power of God to do something in you that you couldn't do on your own. 
right? Just an example. So there's all kinds of testimonies that you could give about how God has been at work in your life. You can go to the next slide, Aaron. So the main thing in thinking about testimony is your life before Christ, how you came to Christ, and then your life after Christ. So explaining what life was like you before you really knew Jesus and walked with him, explaining the process by which you came to know him, and then explaining the changes that Christ has brought in your life since then. And I think if you practice this, you get really good too at even building in the gospel, some of those core theological things into your testimony. I think that would be good. You could talk about turning from sin, trusting in Jesus by faith to be your Savior and your Lord, right? Building the the theology into your personal testimony. Next slide. So there's some tips. Give it some thought beforehand. Pare it down so it's not too long. Make sure it's Jesus-focused, not you-focused. Make sure the gospel's embedded with it. Use simple, clear language. And include an offer at the end. If you could know God in a personal way, would you want to? By finding a way to turn it back around. Ask them, ask them a question. Get them thinking. Okay, last tool, and it's very simple, is just to read the Bible with somebody. So I've done a lot of that this year, more so than I have in previous years, but I've met some students on campus and uh, just through the process of getting to know them, found out that they never have read the Bible before. So I just asked them, if, would you want to read the Bible with me? They were open to it. So we've been meeting, we've been reading through the Bible together. And it's pretty simple. I would just start in one of the Gospels. We've been reading the Gospel of Luke, the guys I've been reading with, and we'll just read through a chapter. We sit down together, we read through a chapter, we ask, what happened? Why do you think this is important? How does it apply to our lives? So that's another method, non-believers. I think you may find, to your surprise, that people are open to spiritual things. They're open to reading the Bible. Last thing I would say about this, so I've given you three methods. I would say that those methods aren't mutually exclusive. Right? So guys that I'm meeting with, I've done all three of those things. We're meeting consistently to read the Bible. I've also shared two ways to live with them. I've also shared testimonies about how God has changed my life. So don't thank one or the other. Just thank all three of these over time. You're weaving them together as you're sharing the gospel with a person. And last thing I would say about evangelism is just to remember that our goal is to be faithful to share and trust God with the outcomes. All that God expects from us is to be a faithful witness. He doesn't expect results. That's up to him. Whitney says, all biblical evangelism is sex successful evangelism, regardless of the results. All biblical evangelism is successful evangelism, regardless of the results. Okay, so we've talked about three methods for evangelism. Now I just want to turn to discipleship here for a few minutes and give you some tools for discipleship. Before we do, we have some statistics. Brenda sent me some statistics this week that came from a recent study that Barna put out. It says just 28% of Christians are actively involved in a discipleship community. So 28% are actively involved in a discipleship community. And the next slide shows reasons why People are not involved. 
I'll have to come over here to read it. So it says, these are barriers for U.S. Christians to making disciples. Top one, 37%. I don't think I'm qualified or equipped. Second one, no one has suggested it or no one has asked me. It's 24%. The third one is I just haven't thought about it. 22%. 3% say they had a bad experience in the past. 14% cite some other reason. So, with regard to the first one, I would say you're not really qualified or equipped in one sense, none of us are. And the other sense, you are, and that you now have some tools. So you can't claim the first excuse. Second one, no one has suggested it or asked me. Jesus suggested it. He asked you. He didn't just ask you, he commanded you. Okay, so you know that now. Third one, you just haven't thought about it. We're thinking about it together. If you had a bad experience in the past, come talk to me after and we'll talk through it. Okay, so we don't have any more reasons not to do it now. So I want to give you some tools. I think we, you know, we have an equation. If our equation at River for evangelism is trust relationships plus gospel conversations, our equation at River for discipleship is coffee plus content. Coffee plus content. The coffee is get to know somebody, spend time with them, have a cup of coffee with them, share life with them. The content piece is have something that you're doing to get into the scriptures together, to be intentional about growing in Christ-likeness. And there's not a specific program, there's not a specific program out there for you to follow. That's the perfect program, but you do need to be purposeful. That's the main thing is make your time purposeful in some way. And so I'm just going to give you some simple tools that you can recycle over and over. So I'm going to give you four tools, and you can just keep using them over and over in the same discipleship relationship. They're simple. They're transferable. They apply to lots of different situations. They're all a shape. They're all a shape attached to a verse and a spiritual principle. Shape versus spiritual principle. So let's talk about the first one. So this is the circle. The circle. So the line, let me just explain it to you. The line across the top there represents time, chronos time, day after day, week after week. All of us who are following Christ or are pursuing Christ one day at a time. Days go along and we're seeking him. The X represents the, the biblical concept of kairos or this moment within the day-to-day time where God speaks or God moves. Maybe we're having our quiet time. Maybe it's sitting listening to a sermon on Sunday morning, conversation we have with another believer, God speaks and we know God is speaking to me. Something needs to happen. So it breaks that process of that happens afterward into two big parts. The first is to repent. The second is to believe. So it's based on Mark 1.15. That's the verse for the circle. It's Jesus' first sermon in the Gospel of, Mount, uh, of Gospel of Mark. The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So it further breaks that process down into observe, reflect, discuss for repent. Observe is just what's going on, what is God saying? Reflect, what does this mean? How do I need to change? Discuss is now I need to talk to it, talk to somebody else about it. That's the repentance process. Observe, reflect, discuss. And then the believe process is plan. What's your plan moving forward? 
Repentance involves change. So what is the change that needs to happen? And then account. How am I going to have somebody hold me accountable to this? Who's going to encourage me, challenge me to help me to grow in this area? And then lastly, act. So if that's too overwhelming, I think it's okay to just remember, repent and believe. Two-part process for the circle. So here's how you could use this in a discipleship relationship. You get together with a guy or a gal you're mentoring and you would just draw the circle out. You would explain it and you would say, what is God trying to teach you? What has he been trying to teach you in the past week since we met? Or the past two weeks since we met? Through your time in the word, things you've been hearing, learning, what is God trying to teach you? Tell me about that. And then just listen, ask questions. Figure out where is God working, what is God trying to teach them, and then talk with them about coming up with a plan. How can I help you in this? Let's make a plan for this. Now, how can I encourage you in this? How can I hold you accountability to this? And encouraging them to take action. Right, so there's the circle. Now, the thing is, if somebody's spending time in the words, they're practicing the spiritual disciplines daily, and you don't see them for two weeks, this, could be diff- this should be different probably two weeks maybe not maybe it's the same thing but the thing is you can refresh this over and over because God's word is living and active his holy spirit's alive people if they're seeking him God's going to be putting his finger on different things in their lives so this is a, a tool that you could recycle over and over in a discipleship relationship it's the circle second one can be helpful to you is the triangle so obviously the shape here is the triangle and The three points of the triangle represent different aspects of the Christian life. So the up represents our love for God. One lower point of the triangle represents our love for the community, love for believers. And the other lower point of the triangle represents love for the lost. So you have up, in, and out represented by the triangle. The verse is Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you can draw the triangle. You can turn to Matthew 22. You can read it together. And then you can just ask these questions. How are you doing in love for God? What's going well? Where do you feel like you're struggling? Talk about that. How do you feel like you're doing in loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? People in your small group, people in your home. What are you doing well? What are you struggling? How do you feel like you're doing in loving the lost? Your neighbors, your coworkers, what are you doing well? What are you struggling? And then what would it look like to lean into growth? And you'll have some pretty good conversations, I would think, out of just a simple tool like that. So again, these are tools that you can use over and over. You could ask this, I think all of us ought to think about that question every Two weeks, so what better than you get somebody and just ask them those questions? How much might somebody grow just from something simple like that? So that's the triangle. We've talked about the circle. The next one is the square. So the principle that's represented by the square is the process of helping someone acquire a skill or a competency. And each side of the square represents part of that process. So the, the, it starts in the top left. The part across the top is the process of I do, you watch. I do, you watch. So let's just imagine you are going to, you're meeting with someone 
and they've never prayed the Psalms before. And you want to teach them to pray the Psalms. So you're going to help them develop that competency. Step one, I do, you watch. This is what it looks like. I want you to come over to my house. We're going to talk for a while and then I'm going to pray a psalm and I just want you to listen. I'll pray the psalm out loud. You just listen. I do, you watch. Second step, going down the the right side there. I do, you help. So next week they come back. Say we're going to pray through a psalm again. But this time I want you to read through it beforehand. I I want you to identify a couple of things that you think you could pray about based on what you're seeing in this psalm. And we're going to pray together. I do you help. Third part, on the, across the bottom, you do I help. So now, third week they come over, you say, okay, I want you to pick a psalm for us to pray through. And I want you to pray through it. Let's talk about it beforehand, and then I'm going to listen while you pray through it. You do I help. And then the fourth st- uh, step in that process is you do I watch. So fourth week, they come back, and you say, I want you to come back with a psalm ready, and I just want to hear you pray through it. You do, I watch. And then when they leave that day, you say, you can do this now. You should do this on your own. Tomorrow morning, get up and pray a psalm. Do it the next day. Do it the next day. Right? You can do this with any of the disciplines we've talked about over the past three weeks. You're meeting with someone, They've never memorized scripture. Let's do the square. Never fasted. Let's do the square. Never shared their faith. Well, I'm going to invite some neighbors over, and I just want you to come for dinner. And I'm going to show you what Christ-like hospitality looks like. I'm going to show you to have conversations with a non-believer. I'm going to show you how to bridge. You can just watch. Next time, I want you to invite a couple of friends to come too. Now I want you to practice, right? There's this process that you can go through with all these things, helping someone acquire a competency or a skill. That's what the square is about. The verse there is Matthew 28, 19 through 20. We've talked about that. Teaching them to obey the things I've commanded you. Next shape, last one. This is the shape that's the hardest for me to uh, connect to the principle, but... It's a half circle. The concept here is living in a, a balanced rhythm of work and rest. A balanced rhythm of work and rest. So the idea with the half circle, which I understand is not quite a half circle, that's like three quarters of a circle. Part of that throws me off. So the idea there is there's a pendulum. There's a pendulum that swings through that half circle and swings back and forth between work and rest. Work and rest. It's, and the passage here is John 15. You're probably familiar with. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. So, the principle here is do you have a rhythm of work and rest? Do you have a rhythm of abiding and then doing? Being and doing are both of those parts of your life. So, questions you can ask here is how do you rest? How do you slow down and pay attention to God? What are some ways you're recreated? When do you pause and silence the oughts? So I think that a lot of students that I've talked to, and I, for a long period of my life, wouldn't have been able to answer the first question, how do you rest? I know what I like to do to have fun. Is that restful? Is that not restful? 
So the idea is you could draw the half circle out and just say, tell me about this. What does rest look like for you? What does it look like to have a Sabbath? What does it look like to spend time with God alone in the mornings? And then what does it look like to move out from that and work, but to remain in the rest of the gospel? How do we do that? How do we live in that tension? So there's another tool that you could use, the half circle. So again, big picture here is coffee content. There's no special program. It could be as simple as opening up the Bible when you get together and reading through it. But these are some tools you could use if you want to have some tools that cover kind of some different spiritual principles that you could work with. Okay. Any questions about any, I know we covered a lot of ground. Any questions about any of that? Drew? Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, uh, that comes from a book called "The Rest of God" by Mark Buchanan. Mark Buchanan, really good book. If you're interested in learning about Sabbath, what does it mean to Sabbath? What does that look like? But he talks about how, when the Sabbath is talked about in the Old Testament, there's two kind of underlying reasons why Israelites were to Sabbath. One is because God did it on the seventh day; God rested. The other is because uh, God says, you have, I've brought you out of Egypt and you are no longer slaves. Rest because you can. And so Mark Buchanan just talks about how one of the things that keeps us from resting, abiding, is these little slaves in our minds, slave drivers who are cracking the whip saying, you ought to do this, you ought to do this, you ought to do this. So what does it look like to silence the odds? Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So my old cross country coach, he uh, he said, some guys need the spurs, some guys need the reins. I think it's the same in a discipleship relationship. I think you'll find some guys or gals that really need the spurs. <laughs> they need somebody to say, "Come on, let's let's go, let's get with it, let's get moving, quit slacking." And then you're going to find other people who are just distraught because they're doing everything they can and never feel like it's enough. And they need the reins of Sabbath, rest, trust God. So I think this is a tool that you can use to figure out where's this person at? How, how, do, how do they need challenge? They need spurs or they need reins? Yep. Um, questions for fam- like uh, like a sibling that's out of the house, or are you thinking like f- within a family, husband's wife, kid? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the. I think some of the. Yeah, I guess some of those you're you're kind of familiar with their background and things like that. Um, I mean, I, I would say some of the things that I've found with family members is when they're talking about hard things, to be able to then ask the question like, like um, I'm struggling with my job. I, I, I don't like my job, and I want to go do this thing because I think that 
I would enjoy that a lot more. Right? I, I have a particular family member. I've heard that over a long period of time, multiple times. And so I think maybe the question there would be, do you really think that you would be happy over there? Like, is, does happiness, do you think happiness comes from what you do? Do you think you're going to be, find, be able to find satisfaction in that? Or, or what is your purpose? Is your purpose to find the job? So I think it's going to have to be, you know, be creative. The thing about family members is you probably know them pretty well. And so that adds um, complexity to it because maybe you know how to get there, but it's a little more of a fragile process. So. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yep. So that for the circle, the principle is repent and believe. Mark one fifteen. Repent in the gospel and believe. So so the goal is to join God in the process that He's wanting to do to, to make a person more Christ like. So the idea is just what is God saying to you and what do you need to be spurred along to, to take action on that? So Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. It's just help. That's, a, you know, that's something we do once. We have this, this, um, this moment in time where we turn from sin, we're born again by the Spirit, this regeneration happens, but that doesn't mean we never repent and believe again. right? That's, a, that's an ongoing process that all of us are going through over and over and over again. So it's just trying to help a person through that process. The square is, the idea is helping a person grow in a competency, so, which is, discipleship, right? teaching someone to obey what I've commanded. So there's information there, but there's also practice. So it's this, this process by which we can help someone learn to obey what Christ has commanded, the square. The principle for the triangle would be the great commandment. God has said, first and foremost is love God, second is love others. So the principle is love. How are you doing at loving people? Luke? Do you have any tips for, in terms of evangelism, maybe you've been heavy-handed with the gospel conversation part, and you've maybe burned the relationship, burned that trust, what would be your advice there? Yeah, well, I think what you have to do now is rebuild trust, and re trust is rebuilt with time and communicating that you still care for that person. So it's probably not a quick solution. If you have burned a bridge, bridges take time to be built. So it's probably going to take time and just consistently being present, communicating love, care for that person. Kill? There's a what? There's no genuinity if you don't make a friendship that's genuine. 
I would say, yeah, yeah. I would say. I mean, I think I would say if he was saying, well, if I do that, it's like I'm making them into a project, I would say, well, don't make them into a project. <laughs> I, I mean, learn to see people as people who are made in God's image and likeness, who are worthy of dignity and respect, who he loves, and who are separated from him. I mean, it's that truth and love part that we talked about. How do I know what it means to be genuine with someone unless I know the truth, right? So I think getting to that, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I get the question, but in some sense, I don't get that question. Yeah. 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 Possibly. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you see. Yeah. Well, I think if you're if you're being genuine and you're living a single-story life, that's just going to come out. That's not going to feel forced or unnatural. It would be forced or unnatural for that to not come out, right? It'd be it would be inauthentic for me to get to know someone and never share about Jesus, who is all of who I am. You know. So, yeah, I think it's a perspective thing. And I would say, you see through the book of Acts that they went out two by two and they just went and proclaimed the gospel. You know, the, the, what, what their, their understanding of trust relationship was pretty small compared to what ours is. Um, does that mean that they didn't care? They, were, they didn't care about those people? Those people were a project? No, I think that they truly believe this is love. This is, this is how I love people. How could I love people and not tell them, right? So, yeah, I think it's a perspective thing. Any last questions? Okay, Brenda's going to come up and go through the GROW model just briefly. One thing I was going to do, and you lucked out, we don't have time, but what I would encourage you and challenge you to do is to sit down with another believer and to practice sharing the gospel with them. I know that sounds super awkward. It can be kind of awkward. I have all our challenge leaders do it. It's awkward for them. But the best way to, to learn this stuff is to practice. So what I would encourage you to do is to, to think about two ways to live. If you don't have it down, get it down, and then get with another believer and say, hey, can I practice this with you? And I want you to try to listen as if you're a non-believer. So I want you to listen for things that aren't clear, that don't make sense. I'm going to explain it, and then when I'm done, I want you to give me feedback. Say, well, when you said this, that was confusing. Or that word you said wouldn't make sense to me if I don't have any background in the Scripture. So practice this. Just grow your fluency in it. 
your ability to, to communicate it well. Okay, Brenda. our mics so they're not on at the same time. So just as a follow-up to what Trace was saying about evangelism, and so I came to faith as an adult, and I know there's the question of how to not feel like a project, and I will say people can sniff out if, if you make them feel like a project, but if you honestly care about them, no matter how long your relationship is with them, they will know that. And I think that's part of what led me to come to the Lord. It's a whole long story. Kevin knows it, most of it, and so does Debbie. But, you know, I had a friend. Some people will come to know the, come to know the Lord right away, but I had a friend who pursued me for five years. Five years. She asked me many times to do things with her, to come to church, but she didn't just ask me to come to church. She also became a part of my life. And I, it was clearly not a project because I'd encountered that before. And so just love people. You know, pray that Bob prayer. Pray that you'll have a broken heart, that you'll have opportunities, and that you'll have boldness. And, you know, over time, I'm grateful that she didn't give up. So anyway, enough said about that. So Trace's message today about cohesiveness of truth and love is really applicable for us as we've been studying the spiritual disciplines because all, the, all of the disciplines are founded on the truth of the Bible because who remembers what Whitney said was the most important spiritual discipline? Bible intake. Good job. And did you notice that Trace listed all five methods today? Anybody want to take a shot? Read, listen, yes, yep, here, um, study, memorize, and meditate. I noticed you said them all, Trace, <laughs> so, and you probably heard them, but I, I noticed that there were all five in there, because being grounded in God's truth is going to be what will prevent us from going off course or making a course correction if we do go off course, and of course, as Trace said this morning, understanding that you cannot separate truth and love. And so as we wrap up our class on disciplines, we want to encourage you to make an actionable plan and find ways to put these things into practice. And maybe you're already doing that some. So I was thinking about what are some of the common challenges that people encounter when trying to make a change or to make a goal. And so here's what I came up with. I was like, first, we never get around to turning our general desire for change into a plan. So for instance, if you want to read the Bible more, we might have that desire, but we've got to figure out what steps we're going to take. And so sometimes we just never put that into place. Or maybe we get overly ambitious and try to do everything all at once. So maybe you're going to start tomorrow and you're going to practice all of those disciplines that we talked about, including the other ones that are in um, Whitney's book that we didn't talk about. And good on you if you do that, but that's probably not a sustainable plan. Could be that we also try to make a perfect plan, and so we're trying to make it so perfect that we never start anything. You know, for instance, with the Bible reading plan, we might be like, well, I don't know if that one's going to work, or I don't know if that one's going to work. And, you know, that could be your barrier. Or maybe you get stuck in the loop of past failures because you're like, well, I tried that before it didn't work. I tried that before it didn't work. And we don't like to fail, do we? But 
That's why it's important for us to remember what Scripture tells us about why we're doing this. So let's look at Timothy again. 1 Timothy 4.7 tells us, Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And then 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So did you notice the repetition of the word training there in those two scriptures? That's because we're training. We are training and we are not trying. And so as you hear us say often, it's about direction, not perfection. We're never going to do it perfectly. So we just get back up and start trying again, or start training again, sorry, using the wrong word. So, and part of that is because we want to put ourselves in the path to encounter God. So if you remember clear back to week one, we talked about how Whitney talks about catching the bus, or as I recall it, being hit by the bus. So whatever makes it memorable, think about getting in that path. And so Trace and I have mentioned it a few times, but we know we've given you a ton of information, right? So I want to share with you a tool that might be helpful to you as you think about how am I going to apply these. And so there is a model called GROW. And... Excuse me. I'm not good at getting my mic away. But it's an acronym that we're going to briefly unpack, and we've used it in some of our leadership trainings, so maybe there may be a few of you familiar with it. But it can be helpful in um, figuring out some steps. And so I'm going to walk through it really briefly, and it'll be in the slides that we send out to you. So G is for goal. State the goal that you are pursuing. And I think it's important to state it as clearly as possible why. So it could be a statement like, I want to practice the discipline of prayer for the purpose of godliness because. And then you fill in the because. And I suggest you make it as personal as possible. Think about why you want to practice this discipline. And yes, it may be because... Um, God says that this is important, but also think about how this would impact your life, right? And maybe you don't know, but try and figure this out as you go. If it's prayer, maybe you think about, I want to have a more intimate relationship with God, or I think this could really impact my family or my friends who don't know Jesus or any number of things. So R is for reality, or actually for current reality. What is your current situation in regard to your specific goal? So if you're thinking about prayer, where are you at with it right now? Are you practicing a few minutes a day, not at all, 30 minutes a day, whatever it is. Think about what is your actual reality as far as what you're doing in regard to this goal. So do a little self-assessment. O is for Oops, it says options and options. That was an editing problem. It's actually obstacles and options. So first, what are the obstacles that are keeping you or have kept you from your goal in this discipline? And so if you're thinking about Bible intake, what has kept you from practicing it in the past? And so once you identify some of the obstacles, then you can think about what some of the options are for you to move through or move past those obstacles. Maybe it's something like, I need to find someone who can help me 
or somebody who's going to read alongside of me and we text each other. Or maybe it's um, a tool. Could be any number of things. So the W is for the way forward. What are the specific steps that you need to take in order to move forward? So not just the desire and not just knowing the why, but actually what am I going to do? And so there's a second tool that might be helpful in this figuring out a way forward. It's called a SMART goal. I know some of you are familiar with those. How many of you are familiar with SMART goals? Several. Awesome. So it's another acronym, and I have seen out there, sometimes they use a few different words, but these are the words that I chose. Um, Specific, what are you going to do? What, when, where, how, and why? And then measurable, how are you going to actually know if you've done it? And achievable, is this something I can actually achieve? Is it realistic, or is it a pie-in-the-sky goal? So there's a tension here between trying to make it realistic, realistically achievable, and then also, you know, you also want to challenge yourself. You aren't just going to stay with status quo because we're trying to grow here. And then relevant, will the steps I'm planning actually help me achieve my goal? Is it relevant to what I'm trying to accomplish? And then time-bound. So this is a little different than specific. So for instance, if you decide you're going to read the Bible for 20 minutes, six six days out of seven, how are you going to track your daily progress? And when are you going to, are you going to say, I want to do this for three months? And then I'm going to, if you've achieved that goal, then set a new goal, right? So pretty simple, simple but complex in trying to figure out what this looks like for each one of us. And so the key to change is to plan. And a plan should be a tool, not a rule. And you've heard Terry say it, you've heard us say it, the best plan is the one that you're actually going to do. And a plan should be simple, flexible, and sustainable. And if the plan doesn't work, work, then adapt it, change it, and adapt it to your changing circumstances. You know, we don't want to be slaves to the plan, but we do want to have a plan that works for us and keeps us going. So keep on training in godliness, and remember that that is the reason that we are practicing these disciplines, for the purpose of godliness, for the glory of God, for our good, and for the good of others. Simple enough. Any questions? That was a super flyover. Yes. Do you have a specific question on that, or you just want to? Okay. It says, what are the specific steps you need to take to move forward? What steps will you take to achieve your goal? How do you move forward? And so then underneath that is consider setting a SMART goal. Yes. Yes. And I would say don't overthink it. I mean, just try and figure out what has kept me from moving forward. What, has kept, what are the obstacles that have kept me from achieving this goal? And then, you know, what are some ways that I can actually overcome them? Any other questions? 
on this or anything we've covered over the past four weeks. Trace, do you have anything to add? Well, we've enjoyed um, walking through this with you guys, and I think Trace mentioned it a couple weeks ago. It's really challenged me and Trace, I believe, just to reevaluate and think through. And so we never, we're never there yet, right? We're going to continue growing into the likeness of Christ as we walk with him and he transform us, at least in this body, right? So thanks for coming, everybody. <laughs>